On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. I'm David Osman, and with me today is Manoj Pradhan of Talking Heads Macro. Our title for this podcast is Demographics Will Reverse Three Multi-Decade Trends. The Independent Research Forum promotes an extensive range of high-quality independent research providers from around the world, both macro and micro, many global, some country-specific, some sector-specific, some stock-specific, and all investment-related. There is a growing concern that the COVID-19 pandemic could mark the dividing line between the deflationary forces of the last 30-40 years and resurgent inflation. I am very pleased that Manoj Pradham is with us today to put this question into a longer-term context. Manoj, along with Charles Goodhart, is a co-founder of Talking Heads Macro, which was set up in 2016. Previously, Manoj and Charles Goodhart worked at Morgan Stanley, where Manoj was the managing director with the responsibility for the global economics team. Before that, he worked at George Washington University and the State University of New York. Manoj is widely recognized for his speciality in quantitative macroeconomics, emerging markets, and global economics. Charles Goodhart is, of course, very well known, being both a former member of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee and a professor at the London School of Economics. In 2019, Manoj and Charles Goodhart co-authored a fascinating and very influential book entitled The Great Demographic Reversal, Aging Societies, Waning Inequality and an Inflation Revival. With its focus on longer-term trends, this book sets out important signposts to the demographic, economic and social trends that will be increasingly important in the post-pandemic decades. Manoj, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the service that is provided by Talking Heads Macro. Uh, David, thank you very much. Uh, and thanks to you and the IRF for having me here. Um, so Talking Heads Macro really is a team that came out of Morgan Stanley, as you mentioned, both Charles and I worked at Morgan Stanley together. And the analysts that we had were part of our global economics team over there. And one of the one of the things we wanted to change is a siloed focus that usually exists uh, on on the street on doing either macroeconomics or uh, macroeconomic related trade recommendations, and then somehow merging the two teams together to come up with a seemingly coherent view, which sometimes isn't. What we want to provide here is a service that looks at fundamental trends, sometimes six months, sometimes 12 months, sometimes a longer period. As you mentioned, the the work on demography that we've done looks decades into the future and still has significant investment conclusions. What we try to provide here is a look at the global economy, the advanced economies, emerging markets, uh, and then come up with trade recommendations in fixed income or equities at the macro level that can be deployed over three months, six months, or 12 months. We have had uh, very strong views on inflation. We've had had very strong views on uh, the emerging market space. Uh, When we were at Morgan Stanley, we coined the term the Fragile Five, uh, which then went on to become a moniker that was used widely around. Um, And we've had a lot of success looking at uh, trends through our unique fundamental cross-asset lens in which we try to break traditional linkages that people make between central banks, bond deals, and FX, which, in our opinion, simply do not work the way conventional thinking does. Uh, We've tried to have notes that are a mix of uh, quantitative-based, metrics-based trade recommendations, 
and general thought pieces that force people to look in a slightly different direction on a slightly longer horizon. It's, it's a great job, never feels like work, and, and we love doing it. So from an economic and investment perspective, what are the key demographic trends that will almost inevitably reverse three multi-decade trends? So the three key stories I would look at, number one would be simply the biggest integration of any labor supply, certainly one of the size I'm going to talk about, into the global supply chain. So over the last 30 or 35 years, what we've had is an integration of China and Eastern Europe into the global economy. And that has led to a very rapid doubling of the available global labor supply uh, in the global economy. And so to the extent that what you get is a shift away of investment from the advanced economies into China, thereby using their effective and significant labor force in a way that has never been used really in the last 200 years, what you saw was a dramatic decline in the global equilibrium wage rate down closer towards China's level, while Chinese wages arose as well to try and meet global wages somewhere in the middle. That's number one. Number two, this was happening at a time when the advanced economies already had a demographic sweet spot in which the working age population was increasing relative to dependence. And that was because the baby boomers were coming of age, particularly in the United States. And the third one was something that's been happening for more than a century. In the background, in what has been termed as a quiet revolution, you had women's participation in the labor force increase dramatically, particularly since the 1960s. Now, all of these demographic tailwinds are behind us. And what that implies is as the reversal comes upon us, things will not look anything like the last 35 years. And if you do agree with us that inflation over the last 35 years has been shaped to a large extent by these demographic forces, then it should be at least a very strong signal that inflation and the direction of inflation is about to change as demography changes as well. So how will these demographic trends impact on wage growth and consumer price inflation in the next five to 10 years? Well, there's two questions there, really. First is, what are the mechanisms that we have for demography to influence inflation? Most people think that demography actually leads to deflation. Aging leads to deflation. That's just not true. So there are three channels you want to think about. Number one, the most intuitive of the lot, right? Workers are deflationary. Anyone who is employed tends to be paid less than the value of what they produce. And out of what the receivers pay, you tend to save for the future. So what you consume ultimately turns out to be significantly less than your contribution into the goods and services economy. On the other hand, dependents, those who do not work, are inflationary. So over the last 30 or 35 years, with those three forces that I mentioned before, you had workers handsomely outstripping dependents. And that meant that the inflationary impulse was being overwhelmed by the disinflationary impact of workers. That's going to change. Number two, what does matter at a very macroeconomic level in terms of sectors is that if you've got the public sector and the private sector offsetting each other's surpluses and deficits, then inflation doesn't really have to play a role. But any time that the government sector runs a huge deficit and the private sector is not going to run a huge surplus, you are going to have to have inflation lend a hand, and that's exactly what's going to happen. And finally, the third one is along with aging comes a significant increase in consumption that actually most people are unaware of. And that consumption, unlike the consumption of youth, 
has to be financed and it's financed by governments leading to higher debt. So what you get out of there, if inflation can rise, is a very strong willingness on the, on, uh, on the part of policymakers to try and erode the burden of debt with inflation. What we argue is that these structural trends actually could have taken a lot longer, but because of the pandemic and the policies that we've seen in here, not least the ones we've seen in the US, that story will get fast-tracked over the next two to three years. And how will the demographic trends impact on such matters then as inequality? The effect isn't direct, but what has happened over the last few decades is that the impact of demography on asset prices, on wage inflation, has really made quite a startling change in here. For example, look at the introduction of China. What the introduction of China does is create a very serious threat to the lower skill manufacturing-based jobs in the United States and the advanced economies, which flowed over to China. And there is microeconomic research here from the Federal Reserve, which shows that on a good-by-good basis. The result was that the upper-income part of the U.S. economy managed to retain its earnings very well. It protected them very well, really. And the lower end, which were in competition with China, really did not uh, protect their real wage growth uh, at all, in fact. They saw a decline over the last three decades if you index it in in about 1980. And so the the impact of the introduction of China and and this global demographic boom was to create inequality in two ways. One, directly on wages, and number two, through asset prices. What's going to change from here on is that you're going to see the shortage of labor pushing wage growth higher. um, And as wages rise, firms will see a need to reverse their own behavior of the last 30 years to invest a little bit more in productivity to protect their profits, which only means they can share part of those increased profits with the labor force. And second is that asset price growth is going to become increasingly hard. And so if you look at the effect of the two, those who have access to returns to capital, which is the relatively well-off part of the economy, uh, will tend to do not as well as they have for the last 30 years. Whereas at the lower end of the spectrum, what you see is wage growth is intrinsically better protected now that that serious wave of globalization is behind us. And the result of the two will be an improvement in the dramatic increase in inequality that we've seen. The tough news is it's still happening in a backdrop of fairly soft growth. If it was happening with rapid growth and improving inequality, the story would have been much better. But unfortunately, that's not the backdrop we've got. And when it comes to your third multi-decade trend reversal, How will demographic trends impact on the trend in real interest rates? So that's a trickier question. And uh, in our book, we are very clear to say that uh, our conviction on what demography does to inflation is much higher than what it does to real interest rates. And the reason for that is as follows. Typically speaking, over very long periods of time, the real interest rate should be determined by savings and investment in an ex-ante sense, of course. Now, the issue is that under the current demographic reversal, or the the one that's coming uh, ahead of us, both savings and investment will fall. And the question is, which one falls by more? Our argument is that, look, investment is going to fall but it's not going to fall by as much as people think. There are two reasons for that. Number one, as I said, when wage growth starts to pick up or the availability of labor or of skilled labor becomes an issue, 
firms will invest much more than they have over the last 30 or 35 years when they've simply said, look, labor is abundant. I don't really need investment because my profits are high um, and I'm, I'm getting enough labor from whenever I like. If that changes, they will invest a little bit more. But more importantly, the biggest stock of capital in the economy is housing and the elderly do not like to move. So what you see is as age rises, the willingness of people to move decreases pretty dramatically. So you end up in an economy in which the elderly remain in their houses and new households therefore require new housing construction. And so you get this downward support on construction and a residential investment, which keeps investment growth high, whereas the savings, as I said before, start going down dramatically, especially as you age further and further along, because the needs of the elderly turn to a completely different area of spending. It turns more towards looking after themselves, healthcare, care, and looking after these neurodegenerative diseases, which are going to become the norm over a period of time. Broadly, we think real interest rates rise, but it's difficult to make that argument with the conviction that we have about inflation. So what does all this mean for the US dollar exchange rates? Will the current situation lead to an early cycle currency war? It's difficult to call this one a currency war because monetary policy has already moved so significantly that any further debasement of the currency, which would lead to expectations uh, of falling returns in that economy, uh, have moved along quite a lot. I think you're quite right that it is going to feel like a war because there are substantial realignments uh, in the global economy that will lead to significant FX changes. But if I may, where those will show up will be the, the changes in savings and investment behavior that we see that come along with aging. For example, if you look at uh, the Chinese economy, uh, China's massive savings that you had before were not only the result of a population that hadn't yet become to become old, but also it was in the midst of a pretty dramatic increase in global spending led by the U.S. consumer. Both those forces are on the reverse. And now over a period of time, I think the renminbi would prefer to go down rather than up in a way that uh, allows capital to flow in. But I think the argument over here is given the amount by which debt is going to rise, the demands for global capital are going to be quite severe. Now, the US dollar plays a very important role, as we all know, 60% of global funding, the cost of funding is all determined in US dollars. And whenever the global economy tends to have uh, a period of decent growth, all the US debases its own currency, the chances of a weaker dollar are quite strong. And I think that is probably what we'll get. The one thing that can change this is if the landscape for investment in the US economy changes so dramatically that we have a very significant change in the productivity profile, that will force the dollar higher. And in fact, it will put disinflationary pressure on the rest of the world, which will then force them to do likewise. So that may turn out to be in the long run, uh, a relatively benign move, but I think the base case still needs to be that the dollar weakens over a longer period of time. So your recent book with Charles Goodhart, The Great Demographic Reversal, was mainly written before 2020 and the start of the global pandemic. However, the book does contain an interesting postscript on the implications of the coronavirus pandemic. So what is the main impact of the pandemic on your previous conclusions? We think the pandemic broadly accelerates some of the trends that we've uh, talked about in the rest of the book. Um, let me explain why. 
First, I think, you know, the one of the main pushbacks that we get against our thesis is, well, what about the role of technology? Why haven't you considered those? And the deflationary impact of that could be very severe. Now, that, that's very true. But I think if you look at what the pandemic has done, is it has forced people already to rethink businesses. Businesses have found out exactly who they need and how many people need to be in the office. And that is already changing things around. So if you think about the deflationary impact that we've had on uh, how labor is supplied, uh, or if we look at the uh, impact that we've seen on retail um, and retail services, a lot of the deflation that may have happened over the next four or five years has been fast-tracked into this last year and a half. Second, the change in attitude of central banks and fiscal policymakers is really dramatic. So we think that aging is going to increase debt very, very, very sharply. And we, this is not an opinion. This comes from the CBO and the OBR and all these statistical offices around the world, which realize that aging uh, is going to be something that uh, will raise the fiscal burden dramatically. But what has happened is a lot of that fiscal spending has been brought forward. And governments who now look back and say one of the biggest mistakes we made in the past was austerity, and we're not going to make that mistake this time around when the public cost has been so large, are fully prepared to remain engaged in a very loose fiscal policy for a very long period of time. So some of that increase in debt that we would have expected only five years down the line has been brought forward in a very, very, very aggressive way. And central banks, who we give so much attention to over the last 30 or 35 years, actually have become secondary players now. They are not the prime drivers of improvement in the economy. They are the ones who are financing fiscal policy. And therefore, they find it very difficult to try and fight inflation threats because doing that will mean risks to financing fiscal policy as well. So we have fast-tracked a lot of the trends that we would have seen over five years. And I think that is the key ingredient which leads us to believe that our thesis is probably getting fast-tracked from five to 10 years down the line to maybe two to three uh, in a very short period of time. Given that the global pandemic is lasting longer than was previously hoped, do you still fear a post-pandemic surge in the year-on-year -year rate of consumer price inflation as high as 5 or 10%? We do. And what remains to be seen is whether we will open this from this point onwards in a pretty straightforward and uh, aggressive way, or whether variants of the kind will lurch us back into periods of very difficult growth, um, as my home country, India, is seeing right now in a very tragic uh, and difficult way. That said, I have absolutely no expertise on epidemiology or anything to do with the virus or uh, vaccination. So I'm going to leave that to the newspapers and, and to people who know far better than I do. What I argue is that there are two kinds of inflation that we will see this year and the next. This year, the kind of inflation that we're going to see is not really macroeconomic. It's what I would call sunspot equilibrium. It matters only because people think it does. The kind of inflation we're going to see this year is the services sectors, retail sectors, airlines, uh, what have you, as they come back to business, they have borrowed over the last year. They've had employees on the payroll over the last year. They've had fixed costs uh, to pay over the last year, and they've had next to no revenues at all. In order to make up for some of that, if they still want to remain in business, prices are going to get marked up. Now, how much they get marked up 
is a matter of how quickly you can open, what the competition is like, what the demand is like. Those are all incredibly hard to forecast. But if you take a look at economies that are showing an early revival, China, for example, is seeing a pretty large increase in inflation. Uh, Russian inflation uh, is also picking up very sharply. And you've seen trends uh, from all the CEOs who have made calls in the United States towards a higher price rise in order to make up for some of the lost revenues. So yes, we could see uh, inflation numbers in the range of 5%. Some indices, maybe producer price indices, which are further downstream, might show an even higher number. We We don't know yet. But what is more important, I think, is that next year, which is when everyone, including markets, if you look at the break-even curve, are expecting inflation to fall, uh, reinforced by the the rhetoric of the Federal Reserve, which also expects this trend, this is the time when we think inflation risks are are highest. The fiscal packages, particularly in the US, are significantly greater than any measure of the output gap that we have seen. And what that means is come 2022, monetary aggregates will be high. Velocity of money will have increased uh, to some more normal levels because the economy will have opened up. The output gap will have closed and fiscal policy and monetary policy will still be in full tilt. It's very, very, very difficult to think that monetary aggregates, the Phillips curve and the pro-cyclical fiscal impulse all show lower inflation going forward. That's a very, very, very difficult pill to swallow as far as I'm concerned. And I think that's where the markets and policymakers will be wrong. Well, that's sobering thoughts at the end there. Thanks for this very interesting and informative insight into the advisory service that's provided by Talking Heads Macro. If we had more time, it would be interesting to discuss in more detail some of the other sections in your book, particularly those chapters that focus on such matters as dependency, dementia, and the coming crisis of caring, and the inequality and the rise of populism, as well as the debt trap, can we avoid it? In addition, it would be interesting to discuss further your views on Japan and the impact of demographic trends there in the recent decades. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Talking Head Macro Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with Manoj Pradham of Talking Heads Macro. David, thanks for having me and thanks to IRF for hosting this one. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks.